Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. We're going to get back to covering some of the big names in surgical history, and today we'll cover one of the biggest, at least in American history. William Stuart Halstead, and that's spelled H-A-L-S-T-E-D, had a huge influence on surgery in the early part of the 20th century, turning a fledgling craft, newly armed with things like antisepsis and anesthesia, but still stuck in the Dark Ages in its techniques and apprenticeship style of teaching, into a true academic specialty, with a rigorous training program and a scientific approach to problems. Amazingly, he did this while struggling with a lifelong drug addiction. Let's find out more in this episode of Legends of Surgery. William Stuart Halstead was born in 1852 in New York to a wealthy family, which had won its fortune through a dry goods company called Halstead Haynes & Company. Halstead began his education with a private tutor in their home on Fifth Avenue, eventually being sent to boarding school at age 10. He graduated at age 17 and took a year off before going to Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. There he studied the liberal arts, but apparently not too much, as he was a below-average student. One anecdote states that there is no record of him borrowing a book from the library in the four years he spent studying there. However, Halstead was an excellent athlete, playing shortstop for the baseball team, captaining the football team, and rowing with the Yale crew. The other interesting tidbit from his Yale days is that he bought the books Gray's Anatomy and Dalton's Physiology in his final year and even attended a few clinics at Yale's medical school. A quick side note on Gray's Anatomy, as most people have heard about it, but probably don't know any history behind it. The book was created by the English anatomist Henry Gray in 1858, intended to be for students. He and his colleague Henry Van Dyke Carter dissected unclaimed bodies from workhouses and the hospital mortuaries to study for their book. They were allowed access to these bodies through the Anatomy Act of 1832. This was passed by the British Parliament to allow doctors, anatomy teachers, and medical students to dissect donated bodies. And the reason for that was in response to public anger over the illegal trade in corpses, aka body snatchers. Prior to this act, the only corpses that could be used legally for dissection were executed murderers by the Murder Act of 1752. Of course, the growing interest in medicine and surgery created a huge demand for more bodies, leading to grave robbers stealing corpses and selling them to these students. Anyways, so tragically, Henry Gray died at the age of 34 from smallpox, which he contracted from his nephew while treating him, and the boy survived. So back to Halstead. He enrolled at the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which was affiliated with Columbia College in 1874, back in his hometown of New York. Also known as P&S, it was founded in 1767, the first medical school in the 13 colonies of what would become the United States, and it's still in operation today. Now, after two years, he applied for an internship at Bellevue Hospital, New York, which he got despite not having his medical degree yet, and stayed there for a year. Bellevue Hospital, as I mentioned before, was founded in 1736, and is the oldest public hospital in the U.S. It actually started out as the city's first permanent almshouse, or poorhouse, and it was affiliated with P&S from 1787 to 1968. In 1873, the first nursing school in the U.S. opened there, based on the principles set out by Florence Nightingale, who I covered in episode 9. It was at Bellevue that Halstead was exposed to surgeons that were adopting Lister's antiseptic technique. And for more on that, see episode 4. In 1877, he took his exams for his MD at the College of Physicians and Surgeons, and was ranked in the top 10 students. After this, Halstead was appointed house physician at the New York Hospital in April 1878, where he worked for six months. Now, during this period, he is credited with coming up with the medical chart to trace vital signs like temperature, pulse, breathing rate, etc., as connected dots on a graph, which seems hard to believe. I can't imagine medicine in a world before charting. 
while apparently clinical progress notes were made in longhand in the physician's recording book, which made changes over time difficult to assess. Halstead's innovation allowed quick reference to show changing vital signs. Now, as there was no formal training at the New York Hospital, or really anywhere in the U.S. at the time, he decided to do what so many medical trainees did at the time, or at least the ones that could afford it. Halstead set sail for Europe. Now, while overseas, Halstead worked with a who's who of European surgery, starting in Paris, but soon going to Vienna, where he learned German. Halstead worked with many of the big names in medicine in Europe. He studied anatomy under Emil Zuckerkandel, pathology under Hans Chiari, and attended the operating theater of Theodore Billroth, the famous German surgeon who will be a subject for a future podcast. A quick side note, Billroth was friends with the German composer and pianist Johannes Brahms, who dedicated his first two string quartets to him. Halstead returned to New York in 1880, where he stayed for the next six years, working tirelessly at six different hospitals, including returning to Bellevue. It was here that he insisted on the setting up of a modern operating theater, which cost $10,000 to build. Halstead got his family to partially fund it, and this was a tent-like structure on the grounds of the hospital, which Halstead used to perform antiseptic surgery. It was also here that he met his lifelong friend and collaborator, the pathologist William Welch. During this period, he was known as a bold, daring surgeon, an inspiring and charismatic teacher. Halstead, along with Welch, organized a private quiz or teaching for medical students, as the curriculum for most medical schools at the time was woefully inadequate. These quizzes were immensely popular, and his students were often at the top of their classes. During these halcyon days in New York, Halstead did a number of pioneering procedures. I'll try to quickly list a few. He was the first to perform autotransfusions, meaning he took the blood from people suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning, typically from gas-burning lanterns in confined spaces called lamplighter's disease, and shaking the blood with air to release the carbon monoxide, then infusing it back into the patient. In 1881, he performed one of the first emergency blood transfusions recorded on his own sister, following the birth of his nephew. Halstead's sister was bleeding out, so he stuck a syringe in his own vein, drew up some blood, and injected it into his sister's vein, possibly saving her life. And this wasn't even the only relative whom he saved. In April of 1882, Halstead was called to see his mother, who was very sick. At two in the morning, at her house, he operated on her, performing a cholecystostomy, which is essentially opening the gallbladder. He removed the offending pus collection and seven st- gallstones. Imagine that. He operated on his own mother, on her kitchen table, although it should be noted that operating in a patient's own home was not as unheard of then as it would be today. She survived without symptoms for another two years. This was one of the first known operations to remove gallstones. Now, unfortunately, another one of these medical firsts would end up destroying his career in New York and altered the course of his life. In September of 1884, at the meeting of the German Ophthalmological Society in Heidelberg, Germany, a paper was presented that described the anesthetic properties of cocaine on the conjunctiva and cornea, which allowed for operations to be done on the eye, opening the door for modern ophthalmological surgery. This paper by Carl Kohler was also reported in the New York Medical Record where Halstead discovered it. He, along with a group of surgeons and medical students, started experimenting with cocaine and quickly became addicted. All right, let's take a moment here to cover the history of cocaine. It is a naturally occurring substance found in the leaves of the coca plant, which is indigenous to South America, Mexico, Indonesia, and the West Indies. People indigenous to South America, particularly associated with the Incan culture in the Andes, have been chewing the leaves for over a thousand years, using it as a mild stimulant. A mixture of coca leaves and saliva was even used as a local anesthetic for ritual trephinations. What is trephination, you ask? It is the act of drilling a hole in the skull, 
which dates as far back as 10,000 years in Europe. In South America, it was thought that this was done for both medical reasons, such as in head trauma to release pressure, and for supernatural reasons to release the demons causing illness. And by the way, the word comes from the Greek trypanon, meaning an instrument for boring. Anyways, the drug we know as cocaine was isolated by the German scientist Albert Niemann in 1860, and the process was actually his dissertation to earn his PhD. Niemann named the isolated drug cocaine from the Quechua word for the coca plant, kuka, the language of an indigenous people in the Andes, and the suffix in, which in chemistry means a basic, as in pH, and alkaloid substance. So interestingly, the suffix cane came from this new word, which is where we get other names for topical anesthetics like novocaine, marcaine, and lidocaine. Cocaine soon became a popular medicine, which could be bought over the counter. By the turn of the century, it was mixed into everything from soft drinks, and yes, Coca-Cola was named after two of its early ingredients, the extract of coca leaves and cola nuts, to medicinal tonics and even wine. The last example was from a drink called Vin Mariani, a mixture of Bordeaux wine and coca leaves, which was popular with some famous people like Jules Verne, Thomas Edison, and even the Pope. There was also a cocaine toothache drop marketed for children. I'll post some pictures of these early products on Twitter. So the problem was that Halstead and his collaborators went beyond the topical or ingested use of cocaine and were sniffing it and injecting it into nerves to cause regional blocks of the areas of the body that the nerve senses. Of the group of collaborators, only Halstead and Richard Hall, who moved to Santa Barbara, California for rehabilitation, survived the addiction. Halstead's only publication on cocaine was in 1885 in the New York Medical Journal. But many sources point to this as evidence of his slipping grip on his addiction. Here is just the first sentence, and I'll read it to you, I'll quote it. Remember, this is just one sentence. Quote, Neither indifferent as to which of how many possibilities may best explain, nor yet at a loss to comprehend, why surgeons have, and that so many, quite without discredit, could have exhibited scarcely any interest in what, as a local anesthetic, had been supposed, if not declared, by most so very sure to prove, especially to them, attractive, still I do not think that this circumstance or some sense of obligation to rescue fragmentary reputation for surgeons rather than the belief that an opportunity existed for assisting others to an appreciable extent induced me, several months ago, to write on the subject in hand the greater part of a somewhat comprehensible paper which poor health disinclined me to complete." End quote. How that got published, I'll never know. Halstead's behavior became erratic, and he began to skip out on surgeries and missed lectures. His friend Welch took him on a sailing trip in February and March of 1886 with the hopes of ridding him of his addiction. Halstead smuggled a two-week supply of cocaine onto the ship, and when that ran out, he broke into the crew's cabin to find something to feed his cravings, which was probably morphine. Upon their return, he ceased almost all professional activity, and by May of that same year, Halstead entered Butler Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island for rehabilitation. Amazingly, he stayed there for seven months and was switched from cocaine to morphine as his treatment. Halstead's good friend Welch gave him a direction at this low point in his life. His reputation in New York was destroyed, so Welch invited Halstead to move to Baltimore, where Welch had just been named the first chief of pathology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, which was to open in 1889. Halstead arrived in December of 1886 and lived with Welch in his rooming house and began work in Welch's experimental laboratory. So let's take a minute here to cover the history of Johns Hopkins. So Johns Hopkins was a person who was born in 1795 and lived his entire life in and around the Baltimore area. Although his Quaker family was initially well-off running a large tobacco farm, 
In 1807, his father, an abolitionist, released hundreds of slaves, which changed their fortunes. Young Johns Hopkins moved to Baltimore to start off on his own and built a thriving mercantile business, eventually becoming very wealthy through railroad investments. He never married and had no direct heirs. We'll get to why in a minute. So Hopkins left the majority of his wealth to fund an orphanage, a university, and a hospital, which at the time was the largest single philanthropic bequest in the history of the United States. So why did he die a bachelor? Because as a young man, he fell in love with his cousin, Elizabeth, but was denied her hand by his uncle, her father. However, he remained close with her, and they both honored their pledge to never marry anyone else. In fact, he also bequeathed a home for her, where she lived for the remainder of her life. Anyways, Halstead devoted himself to doing research in the lab, and fairly quickly made a significant contribution to surgery. Working with animal intestines, he demonstrated that the strength of the intestinal wall lay in the submucosal layer and not the muscular layer. Now what this meant on a practical level is that the methods of the day to sew two ends of bowel back together, which is called anastomosis, focused on connecting the muscle layers, which was inadequate. Halstead showed that by changing the technique to focus on the submucosal layer, you could create a much stronger anastomosis that wouldn't come apart. This laid the foundation for the development of the field of gastrointestinal surgery. But after several months working in the lab, Halstead relapsed and was readmitted to the Butler Hospital, this time for a nine-month stay, getting discharged in December of 1887 and returning to the lab. While he was never readmitted to hospital for his drug addiction again, Halstead continued to struggle with it. And in the words of Welch, quote, as long as he lived, he would occasionally have a relapse and go back to the drug, end quote. Now, as the Johns Hopkins Hospital was preparing to open, Welch chose the famous Dr. William Osler, considered the father of modern medicine, and also Canadian, by the way, as the first chief of medicine. Osler, in turn, convinced Welch to hire Dr. Howard Kelly as the first chief of gynecology, who has been credited with establishing gynecology as a true specialty. And for those of you that work in the OR, you will recognize the instrument that bears his name, the Kelly forceps, or clamp. As for the chief of surgery, the first choice for the board of trustees was a Scottish surgeon named Sir William McElwain, but he made unreasonable demands like bringing over his entire OR staff, so Halstead was recommended. However, the board initially gave him lesser titles, including associate professor, surgeon-in-chief of the dispensary, and acting surgeon to the hospital. Their hesitancy was probably from concerns over his drug addiction, but Osler wrote a letter of support, and by 1890 he was named chief of surgery, completing the big four founding professors of Johns Hopkins, Welch, Osler, Kelly, and Halstead. Halstead remained in that position for 30 years and had a remarkably productive career. There were so many innovations that I'll only mention some briefly and then go into detail into one of the most famous ones. He developed an operation for inguinal or groin hernias, one to cure breast cancer, which we'll come back to, did the first cholidocotomies in the U.S., which is to open the common bile duct, which runs from the liver to the small intestine to remove stones, performed the first periampulary cancer resection in the world, and that's a tumor that arises from where the common bile duct meets the small intestine. And by the way, that anatomical location is called the ampulla of Vader, named after an 18th century German anatomist, and not Vader as in Darth Vader. He also pioneered a number of vascular or blood vessel surgeries, and was the first to use the plate and screw technique with buried screws to manage long bone fractures. But let's get back to the breast surgery development. In 1889, Halstead described the first so-called radical mastectomy, although versions had been at least attempted since the late 16th century. So this was a method of removing the entire breast 
regional lymph nodes, and underlying chest muscle to treat breast cancer. At the time, breast cancer was essentially a fatal disease, and surgery was rarely successful. But between 1894 and 1895, Halstead reported on 50 cases of radical mastectomy, with only three local recurrences of the cancer, a 6% rate. Other series of surgeries at the time showed recurrence rates between 51 and 82%. And in 1898, he reported a series of 130 operations done with his residents John Finney, Joseph Bloodgood, and Harvey Cushing, who would go on to become a famous neurosurgeon. His mastectomy operation lasted until the 1960s, when it was realized that other less invasive treatments worked just as well. Another surgical innovation that Hopkins is frequently credited for is the introduction of surgical gloves. Although there's certainly doubt in the historical record about him being the first, with descriptions as far back as 1758 when gloves were worn in the era before rubber and were made from the cecum, uh, meaning the colon, of a sheep, and later usage of rubber gloves for post-mortem examinations before Halstead's era were described. But there is an interesting story behind his introduction of surgical gloves, so let's dive in. First, let me describe the process for scrubbing or washing the hands for surgery used in Halstead's day. So initially the hands, arms, and nails were scrubbed with green soap. The hands and arms were then immersed in a saturated solution of potassium permanganate, and then a hot oxalic acid solution. Finally, there's a soak in mercuric chloride. As you can imagine, this is not exactly soft on the hands. Halstead's primary scrub nurse, Caroline Hampton, in particular, was finding it taking a huge toll on her skin. So Halstead wrote to the Goodyear Rubber Company, which some might remember from the podcast 26 on the Foley catheter, to request two pairs of thin rubber gloves with gauntlets. His intention may have been more than altruistic, as Halstead would later marry Hampton. It's interesting to think, though, that his initial intention was to protect the operator from a surgical rash rather than the spread of germs. In fact, it was one of his students, Dr. Joseph Colt Bloodgood, who I mentioned earlier, that extended the use of surgical gloves to the entire operating team, and he showed that the infection rates in a large series of hernia repairs over two years fell from 29% to 2.5% with the introduction of gloves. Of course, despite these results, there was resistance to change, with many experienced surgeons fearing a loss of dexterity and sense of touch, which turned out to be unfounded, but it still took decades for universal acceptance. And even Halstead himself wondered why it took him so long. Quote, It is remarkable that during the four or five years when as an operator I wore them only occasionally, we could have been so blind as not to have perceived the necessity for wearing them invariably at the operating table, end quote. So Halstead's other major contributions to surgery were the introduction of the concept of safe surgery and the creation of the system of surgical residency training, which evolved into the training programs we have today. His approach to surgery during this time focused on the gentle handling of tissue to avoid injury, minimizing blood loss, and absolute asepsis. He switched from cat gut suture, which is actually made from sheep or cow intestine, to silk as it was more fine. His focus was on carefully closing each anatomical layer at a time. He convinced his students that speed was not the foundation of surgery, but rather attention to detail, which gave far superior results. This became known as the Halsteadian approach to surgery. I did come across one funny quote, though, attributed to the visiting surgeon Will Mayo of the Mayo Clinic fame, after watching Halstead operate, quote, My God, this is the first time I have seen the wound healing at the upper end while it is still being operated upon at the lower end, end quote. Now, Halstead was influenced by his early European learning experiences and set up the residency training program at Johns Hopkins after the ones he saw in Germany. This consisted of a number of assistants, a few residents, and one chief resident who held that position for two years. Halstead taught the chief, who would then teach the more junior residents. 
Many of them went on to have successful surgical careers, starting similar training programs around the country. The fundamentals being affiliated with a teaching hospital, postgraduate qualifications for entering medical students, and a focus on patient care, teaching, and research are still with us today. On a personal level, the Halstead of Baltimore was quite different from the one of New York. No longer a dashing character known for bold operations and zest for teaching, he became quite reserved, leading a very private life with very few close friends. He and Caroline had no children, and when they did entertain, Halstead was known for being very involved in choosing the food, the coffee beans, and even the wood for the fire. He insisted on ironing the tablecloth after it was placed on the table to avoid creases. He was a sharp dresser, and there were stories of him sending his French-made shirts back to Paris to be laundered. Halstead often traveled back to Europe in the summer, and would typically keep to himself secluded in his hotel. One of his students that I mentioned earlier, the famous neurosurgeon Harvey Cushing, described him this way, quote, A man of unique personality, shy, something of a recluse, fastidious in his tastes and in his friendships, an aristocrat in his breeding, scholarly in his habits, the victim for many years of indifferent health, over-modest about his work, indifferent to matters of priority, caring little for the gregarious gatherings of medical men, unassuming, having little interest in private practice, he spent most of his medical life avoiding patients, even students when this was possible, and when health permitted, working in clinic and laboratory at the solution of a succession of problems which aroused his interest, end quote. Now, how much this change was due to his attempts to hide an ongoing drug habit is hard to say, but his closest confidants suspected that he continued to use morphine throughout his life. In 1919, at the age of 66, Halstead developed gallstone disease and underwent surgery, which was not entirely successful as he continued to be symptomatic. Three years later, in 1922, he developed fever, abdominal pain, and jaundice, which means turning yellow, often because of the flow of bile being blocked. Two of his former trainees were summoned, and they operated, removing a large gallstone. But his post-operative course was rocky, and he developed pneumonia, passing away on September 7th of 1922, at the age of 69. Halstead was buried back in his hometown of New York. Halstead's legacy cannot be understated, and I apologize for such a lengthy episode, and for those of you still sticking with me, thank you, but there was simply too much interesting material to not give it its proper due. He revolutionized the practice of surgery, not just in his specific surgical innovations, but more in his changing the culture of surgery, from one of relatively unregulated practitioners who learned by apprenticeship and took a haphazard, speedy approach to operations, to one where formally trained surgeons took a scientific approach to problems and performed safe and meticulous surgeries. Halstead truly revolutionized the profession of surgery. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode will come out the day after Groundhog Day. And believe it or not, groundhogs have actually played a role in the history of surgery. You'll have to tune in then to find out how. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery. Or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.